Hey Lee, what's going on? How are you? Hey, hey Michael, good. Good to see you. Good, good. Hanging in there in this uh, coronavirus uh, new life that we are all living and yep. just trying to survive and make it through. For sure. Yeah, you know, so, we were talking about it earlier, but um, we were, we're coming off of our, we've got a level four, level three thing. I'm not sure if you guys uh, are doing that. I don't know, just sort of ramping no. it up all the way to full lockdown and then back down again. And uh, and so we're on my birthday on, t- on the 27th of April. If anyone wants to send me a birthday present, there you go. You have the date now. Uh, <laughs> 27th of April is when we're going down to the third level. So it's just we're on level four, we're going down to level three. And uh, apparently we can get takeout again. So it's been like, uh, you know, it's been about a month or so without any wow. takeout, no dominoes. Oh, wow. You know, people are losing wow. weight everywhere. And um, <laughs> and now we get to just go back to a little bit more uh, normalcy. Um, but it's still, you know, as we were saying earlier, it's still a long time before. It's not going to be true normal. It's going to be. Yeah, fake normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's going to be a very gradual <laughs> process. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to be with us for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get through it. We'll get through it. We keep going and, uh, and, you know, use the opportunity just to, you know, whether you got less time or more time. I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see. uh, Again, we were talking about it earlier. I've had some a little bit more time. Um, So I'm trying to use it well, you know, just trying to not waste it uh, with all the craziness going on. Uh, But I know other people are just really, you know, they're busy. So hopefully that flattens out for them on that side and, and just, uh, you know, it just gets a little bit more chilled because I think people are, you know, moms are like homeschooling and working and doing all these things. And, you know, it's, it's busy. But anyways, we'll give them some theology to think about on top of that. Okay. You that know? Good. There we go. Um, now, in terms of uh, if you're just joining us, if this is uh, the first episode you've managed to kind of just uh, get onto, uh, just keep in mind that we've got a few of these with Lee. Um, uh running i think the three three episodes now so this is the fourth one and uh so do go check those out if you want to have some more um background we'll do a little recap and a run-in but um just be aware that those things are there and then you know much of what we talk about at this point and uh what what we have been talking about is fleshed out in some degree or another in various episodes from that point on or at least uh prior to that so uh do check those out as well um, and I won't take the time to introduce Lee again, because that's kind of um, that that all happened on the first episode. So I know we we'll take a decent chunk to do that. So let me let me let me rather just uh, allow people to go and um, visit that previous recording. And uh, we'll just jump straight in. Um, we have looked at uh, monocovenantalism and that versus federal theology, as you've been defining it. We've looked at the law gospel contrast. We've looked at the broad versus narrow gospel. Um, and so. Uh, anything you can think to say to get us a, a little bit of a run in there, uh, Lee? Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> monocovenantalism is the view that it's a, a version of covenant theology that either denies or downplays the covenant works with Adam in the garden and either denies or downplays the repetition of the works principle at Sinai in the Mosaic covenant and tends to make all of the covenants of scripture, including pre-fall and post-fall, into one covenant of grace. And the way law fits into that is that grace constitutes and law regulates. That's a quote from Robert Lethem in his Systematic Theology. That's just one example of a monocovenantal system. That stands in contrast with federal theology that sees a very clear contrast between the covenant of works with Adam in the garden and the covenant of grace made after the fall, and sees those two covenants as antithetical. One is based on works, the other is based on grace. One is based on 
the principle of inheritance by the law. The other is based on the principle of inheritance by the promise. Romans 4, 16, Galatians 3, 18, and so on. So that distinction within covenant theology, two broad types of covenant theology, is very helpful for setting the context to understand the law gospel contrast. And my concern uh, is that I believe it's very helpful to define the law gospel contrast in terms of federal theology, in terms of these two covenants. Hmm. Uh, and one issue that was brought up, I think two episodes ago, in, at least in our conversation, uh, was the question of Mike Horton's view on this. And uh, you asked me, does Mike Horton agree with this federal uh, contrast, this federal understanding of the law gospel contrast? And it, my initial reaction was, I don't know for sure, but I think he does. Someone on Facebook, pointed out to me that in his recent book on justification, uh, this is a two-volume uh, uh, treatise on justification in the New Studies and Dogmatics series. In volume one, and on page 298, he explicitly does do that. He addresses the law gospel contrast and oh, federal yeah. theology Beautiful. and says that the law gospel distinction evolved uh, into a two-covenant scheme in in uh, Reformed theology, yeah, as opposed to Lutheran theology, and he's defending that formulation. So that's very helpful to me, yeah, and, totally. and I totally agree with where he's going on that. That's a great book too. Wow, that's uh, yeah. the whole you know Horton's uh, comeback on N.T. Wright, and you know just mm -hmm. I mean yeah. just seeing him versus Piper kind of go at the N.T. Wright thing was yeah. pretty awesome. You know, it, yeah. That's a great book. It's, it's yeah, just, and, uh, and I was also very pleased. This is a footnote, but I was very uh, excited to see that he referenced my work. Did he really? On the right, yeah, on the righteousness of God. Awesome. That's in volume two, the second volume. Awesome. Um, I could see why. Uh, and yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he has quite a few footnotes referencing my work, and so it was really cool to see that. Oh and, my goodness! Uh, yeah, wow, awesome. Um, so we're we're in the same thinking yeah. here. Very yeah, that's great to know. So, yeah. Thanks for thanks for following yeah. up. Yeah. Cool. So then I think that this is very helpful because if we define the law as the covenant of works or the law as a covenant of works, then that helps to distinguish uh, the, the law gospel contrast in a reformed covenantal way from bad definitions of the law gospel contrast. And yep. I'm defining a bad definition as one that says that the law is any command or any imperative that's found in the Bible. And the gospel is any promise or any good news that, you know, Christ died for your sins or anything like that. Mm. And that second part, defining the gospel as the promise or the good news of the gospel, that's not bad. Mm -hmm. But when you set it in contrast with any command or any imperative, rather than in contrast with the law as a covenant of works, yeah. then that leads to a problem where now you can't have a genuine third use of the law you can't all you have is these two things any command or any promise right. and the commands always just show you your sin and show you your guilt and drive you to christ and the promises of the gospel are there to comfort you and encourage you and you're just constantly flipping back and forth between these two poles right it's almost like you know taking the heidelberg catechism guilt grace and gratitude and it's like chopping off gratitude and just right. saying guilt grace guilt grace and you're just vibrating back and forth between those two things Brutal. yeah and there's no gratitude there's no idea of the law not as a covenant of works but the law in the hand of christ calling us to 
obedience, calling us to live in light of our union with Christ, not in a works-based way, mm. not in a meritorious way, mm. not in a way that condemns you and leaves you feeling worthless, but in a way that encourages you and that draws you into your union with Christ so that you can live out of it yeah. and bring forth the fruits of righteousness that are pleasing to him. Yeah. So that's my concern. That's why I want to emphasize that federal theology helps us to come up with a better definition of the law gospel contrast. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Um, all right. So that, that pretty much brings us uh, onto where, where we left off. Oh, well, I suppose we, we have the whole, uh, um, some some aspects to do with the actual law gospel contrast itself right and mm -hmm. um and i don't know if there's anything you wanted to um uh, cash in on there or whether you want to talk more about the broad and narrow gospel before getting into the stuff that we're going to get into today okay so briefly uh one question that people have asked is okay let's agree with this idea that the law gospel contrast is covenantal or federal and it's between it's a contrast between these two covenants the mm -hmm. covenant of works and the covenant of grace well then where do certain things fit into that such as um number one the free offer of the gospel oh yeah the call to repent and believe mm -hmm. and then number two um the third use of the law and the the imperatives of the christian life do we view those two things the call to repent and believe and the Christian life imperatives, do we view those as gospel or law? Mm, <laughs> yeah. And there's a sense in which they're law, if you define law in a broader way okay. as the moral law, just the, the requirements that God has placed upon all mankind, right. viewed not as a covenant of works, but just as simply the moral law, the, the, uh, the standard of God's requirements yeah and in a sense you could say that even repentance well not repentance per se but faith that is the first commandment right i mean right everyone's called to believe we, and we should yeah. believe anything that god says right whatever god says we have a moral obligation to believe it yeah and so if he tells us that christ died and rose again so that we could be saved then we have an obligation to believe that mm -hmm. so in a sense you could say that that faith is it's not a work, but it is an act of obedience in conformity to the moral law. Right, right. But we're not really talking about the law in that sense. We're talking about the contrast between the law as a covenant of works mm -hmm. and the gospel as the covenant of grace. Yeah. And so, therefore, I want to argue that the command to repent and believe and the Christian life imperatives fall under that second category of the covenant of grace. But I also want to recognize that those things are not the gospel in the narrow sense. Yeah. The gospel in the narrow sense is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul makes that very clear. First right. Corinthians 15, one to four. Mm -hmm. uh, First Corinthians 2, two, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Not even baptism, he says, right? Yeah. Christ did not call me to, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well. So even baptism is technically not part of the gospel in that narrow sense, but it doesn't mean that it's part of the law as a covenant of works either. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I would include these other things, the, the, the call to repentance of faith, Christian life imperatives, the sacraments. I would view those as part of the gospel. They're in the second branch of this contrast. Mm -hmm. They're under the covenant of grace, mm -hmm. but they're part of the gospel in the broader sense of mm -hmm. implications of the gospel, 
there's all kinds of things that surround the gospel itself. Christ's death and resurrection is the core. That's the narrow gospel. But there are all these things that surround it that are part of the gospel proclamation. They're part of the gospel as we preach it. Yeah. You can't preach the gospel without preaching these other things, right? Right. Totally. <laughs> you don't just say, hey, Christ rose again and died. Goodbye. That's all there is. Yeah. Right. Right. There's there's calls to repentance and yeah. to faith. There's also historical and theological context to understand that gospel. Who is this Jesus? Why did he come? Right. What are the what's the Old Testament history leading up to it? Even the concept of the day of judgment, which is not part of the narrow gospel, but the narrow gospel is not there's gonna be a day of judgment, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. not the gospel, that's not right. good news. Yeah, but the fact that there is going to be a day of judgment is part of the gospel in that broader sense because you can't preach the narrow gospel without understanding that context that there is a holy God and we're all accountable. Yeah. You mentioned so that's the text why, as well that, that just explicitly brings that out, right? Where Paul says, uh, you know, this is, he's talking about judgment. He right. says, this is my gospel. Yeah. 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 Romans 2, 16. Mm-hmm. On the day when God judges the secrets of mankind. And then he adds, according to my gospel. Yeah. Or a better translation would be, as my gospel declares. Mm. I think that's the NIV. Uh, so according to Romans 2, 16, then there the preaching of the fact that there is a coming judgment is part of the broader gospel. Mm-hmm. You can't preach the gospel without some of that historical and theological context, mm-hmm. even though technically that's not the gospel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gospel is not God's going to judge you. Right. That's not gospel. That's not good news. <laughs> yeah. The gospel is that Christ died and rose again so that we could be saved and so that judgment is born for us through Christ, our substitute. Yeah. So, that's why I think it's helpful to uh, make this distinction between the broad and the narrow gospel. And that's not new to me. I mean, there are other theologians who have said the same thing. Sure. Uh, John Cahoon, in his treatise on the law and the gospel, has a chapter on that very point, uh, distinguishing between the narrow and the broad. And so also a great I think, book. That, yeah. but it's, I think it's helpful, though, to, to see that distinction, because then that helps us to more accurately understand what we mean by the law gospel contrast yeah because if we take that in the wrong way then we could end up throwing out all these broader things that are like i mean if you picture like a bullseye the bullseye is the narrow gospel of mm-hmm. christ's death and resurrection and then the broad gospel is the outer rings of the bullseye if you have this wrong definition of the law gospel contrast where you define the law as any kind of command or anything that's not christ died for you mm-hmm. uh then you're going to take that outer band of the bull of the of the target, and you're going to throw that over in the category of law, right? Yeah, and not as being part of the gospel. Yeah, and yet, even though it is part of the gospel, we don't want to confuse it with the core of the gospel, which right. is right. the good news that Christ died and rose again for us, His yeah. perfect life and death on our behalf as our representative, as the second Adam. That's the bullseye of the gospel. So mm-hmm. we don't want to even confuse the bands with the bullseye. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we do want to maintain that that whole target is part of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I we think, have precedent uh, for that in, in Mark 1, you know, in yeah. verses 14 and 15, where Mark says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom mm-hmm. and then included within that. So that's the broad gospel. Right. And then included within that is repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, that's a good so that's one. the narrow gospel. So you see broad and narrow used within the space of two verses. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Very, very helpful. Um, 
to, I mean, I think theologically, obviously, there are all sorts of implications of not getting this right, but I think just practically as well, just, um, you know, I mean, we're talking about basic Christian life stuff at some level, you know, and, and you need to be able to categorize this as you, as you read, you know, as you read what God would have you do and where your standing lies and, and you know, and obviously we'll get some more into that uh, in this session, but but um, just an incredibly important practical benefit of, of categorizing these things correctly in your mind. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, that brings us um, to the point that we need to talk about uh, the covenant of grace and uh, and how that works with its conditionality. Okay. All. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is a really hard topic. And the question is, is the covenant of grace conditional or unconditional mm. and um, there's no easy answer to this if you look in uh, all of the writings of these federal theologians that we've been talking about <laughs> you're getting get, you're gonna get different answers yeah um, uh, Thomas Boston and Herman Witsius are two prime examples of federal theologians. They clearly understand the law-gospel contrast in terms of the covenant of works and covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. um, they totally affirm the imputation of the active and passive obedience of Christ. The satis In other words, the idea that Christ, as the second Adam, satisfied the works principle. Mm -hmm. He satisfied it both by his life and his death, both by his obedience and by bearing the curse of the law. He, he fulfilled the requirements of the law, the positive requirement to obey perfectly, and he fulfills the, the curse of the law mm -hmm. that we deserve to take in our place. That we deserve to take. He took it in our place. So they, they understand federal theology. They understand the law-gospel contrast. They mm -hmm. understand covenant of works, covenant of grace. But they want to define the covenant of grace as being unconditional. And you can understand why. Because yeah. Christ fulfilled the conditions. Exactly. And if Christ yeah. fulfilled the conditions, then there's no condition left for us but pure grace. Right. It's just purely a, it's just a, and the, the term that they would use a lot of times was they would say the covenant of grace is technically not even really a covenant. It's actually a testament. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because a testament, well, maybe a better way to put it is a testament is a certain type of covenant. Right. In which there's no conditions. Right. It's purely, you know, using the analogy of the, Head of the household, he passes away mm -hmm. and he leaves a will, a last will and testament. And he says, I bequeath my inheritance to my children. Um, there's nothing that children need to do, right? It's collect, just yeah. guaranteed. They right. Grow up and receive it. It's yeah. theirs, yeah. right? The right. testament is absolutely guaranteed as an unconditional grant of saving benefits mm -hmm. to the elect. Mm -hmm. Even the response of faith to receive the benefits is one of the blessings one of the it's part of the inheritance that christ has secured mm -hmm. through his active and passive obedience he has merited not only the inheritance he's merited the faith by which we receive the inheritance right right and so the covenant of grace in witsius in boston is unconditional yeah. But then you go to other Reformed federal theologians who are equally clear on the law gospel contrast, equally mm -hmm. clear on covenant of works, covenant of grace, uh, equally clear on the satisfaction of the works principle through Christ's active and passive obedience, all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're not they're not neonomians. They're not you know bring, bringing us back to Rome in any way. They're not bringing in any right. kind of works. 
into the gospel, but they say that the covenant of grace is conditional. Yeah. And this would be theologians like Turretin. Right. He has a, an actual chapter on this very question. Okay. What is the covenant of grace and what are its conditions? You know, <laughs> and he says the condition is faith. Right. Uh, Charles Hodge says the same thing. The mm -hmm. condition is faith in Christ. Although Hodge adds a little qualifier, which I think is helpful, that the condition of faith in Christ only applies to the adult members of the covenant of grace. That, of course, fits in with the whole issue of infant baptism. So right. he wants to say that uh, that the children of believers are also a part of the covenant of grace, yeah. um, even though they don't necessarily have conscious faith yet, but they need to grow into that and have that at some point. Right. Um, there's also um, the Westminster Larger Catechism that would fall under this. For listing off all the theologians mm -hmm. on on this debate, yeah. Uh, Larger Catechism 32. Okay. Uh, uses the word condition. Right. So what's interesting about this one though is that the Larger Catechism seems to actually agree with Thomas Boston on this other debate about distinguishing between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. Boston and the larger catechism question number 31 mm -hmm. collapse those two and say that the covenant of grace is made with Christ as mm. the second Adam. Mm. Interesting. But then in question 32, the larger catechism seems to kind of shift from that a bit, just mm -hmm. slightly, mm -hmm. and says, well, yes, it's made with Christ, but it's also made with us and the condition is faith. Right. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Let me read that to you. It says, yeah. how is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? The second covenant being the covenant of grace, mm -hmm. right? Because the first covenant was the covenant of works that right. was broken yes. because the federal head failed. Mm -hmm. And so now we're all under the curse of that covenant. Mm -hmm. Then God didn't leave us all to perish in the state of sin and misery, but he made a second covenant, the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. So how is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? This is larger catechism question 32. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator hmm. and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as the condition. Yeah. There's that word yeah. to interest them in him, promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience. Hmm as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Oof, a lot of stuff going on there. A lot of stuff going on there, right? Yeah. So I'm going to put larger catechism question number 32 in the category of the theologians. Right. Well, catechism is not a theologian, but whoever wrote it, uh, put it in the category of theologians that hold to the view that the covenant of grace is conditional right. and that the condition is faith. Mm -hmm. Okay. So wh where do, how do we resolve this and mm. wh where do we go with this? Um, yeah. On the one hand, saying that it's unconditional makes sense. It fits in with the freeness of the gospel. It fits in with this idea that Christ satisfies the condition mm -hmm. for us by his active and passive obedience. He merits the benefits. He merited all the benefits and the inheritance of the covenant of grace for us. Right. But does that mean there's nothing left for us to do? Don't we need to own the covenant somehow? And what's interesting is that even someone like Thomas Boston, who is so clear, his his view, his book called A View of the Covenant of Grace, mm -hmm. 
which I just read, um, he is so clear in saying that the covenant of grace is absolute. That's their term for unconditional. It has no conditions because Christ has fulfilled the conditions. Mm -hmm. And yet he also has a very lengthy section where he says, we have to lay hold of the covenant by mm -hmm. faith. Mm -hmm. We have to somehow, there's something we have to do in order to receive the benefits of the covenant. Mm -hmm. And of course that's faith. Yeah. Receiving and resting in Christ and receiving his righteousness and receiving all that he has to to give us in that covenant, including sanctification and glorification, all the benefits of the covenant, which come to us as a gift mm. because Christ has won it. So what's, what I find interesting then is that even the theologians that are so strongly emphasizing the fact that the covenant of grace is unconditional, they still go on to say yeah. that there's something we have to do to respond to it. Right. They may not use the word condition to describe that, but right. they do talk about how we need to receive the blessings by faith and lay hold of the covenant and become recipients of the benefits. I mean, you could use going back to the analogy of the Testament. Yeah. Right. Even right. there, even though that's an unconditional grant, yet you still have, if you're, if you're one of the heirs, and the testator has died and left you his inheritance, you still have to do something, right? You you, mm, you have to like yeah. go to the go to your lawyer and and you know go to the bank and get the account transferred and you have to receive it somehow. Right, right. 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 Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, even a testament is may not be conditional per se, but there's some kind of receptive response that is required yeah. in order to to enjoy the fullness of the rewards that have been earned for us by christ and it's so it's so tied in with um you know i just as you're talking i'm thinking about um a lot of uh a while back i had a quite a deep dive into into john gill's theology and uh and yeah. how that sort of played into well i suppose thomas boston was uh, uh somewhat uh, involved in, in terms of just the free offer thing and everything but exactly but yeah. in terms of uh you know this, this actual uh covenant of redemption covenant of grace uh, collapse that That's had some key. interesting exactly. implications yeah and just um i remember reading through uh um uh i think it was tom askell's dissertation who you know he did this whole big study on really comparing um the view of john gill to say andrew fuller uh who had something closer to to thomas boston and um and just just seeing how if you if you you know it's almost like he's stuck in this very place like he has no way to ask anyone to 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 even respond you know because then you're you're just in, encroaching on something that christ has done and so you know and tom eskel basically said listen all of, we need the covenant of grace just to be able to to be able to talk this way to be able to you know the the, the, the next leapfrog is in hyper calvinism right. and so you have to worry worry about that as right. you think about this <laughs> yeah right so if you don't so if you if you if you want to hold to the idea that the covenant of grace is unconditional, which mm -hmm. I personally do not, I think it should, we should just say it's conditional. Mm -hmm. The condition is faith. But if you want to go down this path of saying it's unconditional mm -hmm. with Witsius and with Boston, yeah. you do have to, like you said, you have to be careful that you don't end up with hyper-Calvinism right. where you just have no, you're not offering the gospel to anyone. You're just saying, 
well, it's only for the elect and who knows if you're elect or not. Yeah. And so you just kind of sit there and go, am I elect? I don't know. I'll just wait and see what happens. <laughs> you know, and, and and every, everyone create... else is waiting to see what happens too. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, is he doing the Twitch? Is he doing the, yeah. you know, is, he, <laughs> is he kind of showing himself to be elect? And everyone's right. just getting real introspective real quickly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's ironic about that though, is that in some cases that can lead to one of two directions. It can lead to an antinomian view yeah. of just like, well, I'm, I'm either elect or not, so I might as well just live as I want. Yeah. Or it could also lead to a very legalistic right. view of the Christian life, because now since you're not sure if you're elect, you have to look at yourself to see if you're elect, like you yeah. said, yeah. and you have to examine your heart and see, do I have all the signs of being elect? Do I have enough repentance? Do I have enough obedience? Do I have mm -hmm. enough fruit? Mm -hmm. And then so ironically, something that began with a, a good motive of really yeah. trying to treasure grace. Mm -hmm. The unconditional folks are trying to treasure grace and mm -hmm. say, Christ fulfilled the covenant for us. But it can kind of spiral around again and end up in a bad place yeah, all sorts where of, it could lead uh, to legalism. You thousands again. of conditions so, yeah. almost, you know, you've got yeah. these pseudo conditions and, and uh, yeah, you'd rejected conditions, but yeah, <laughs> you got them in the end, you got a lot of conditions. So, and you can have, there's some, uh, cases that I've heard of, I've never experienced this myself in any kind of congregational life, but I've heard that there are congregations in Scotland and in some Dutch traditions where you have communion held very infrequently, like maybe once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. And then it's only offered to those that are sure that they're elect. And so when communion is held, you have a front pew with maybe three or four old folks sitting there who... Right. Feel like they're elect and the rest of the congregation is in the back just kind of saying i don't know if i'm elect or not man <laughs> you know and, and that reminds me of like the the tax collector and the, and the pharisee yeah. kind of thing you know and you can't almost want to go like the guys in the front are the guys that they didn't yeah so who are the guys in the front how can they you know they're yeah. so confident that they're elect wow yeah you know man. So yeah, it's, it's difficult. And and again, just relating to that very practical issue, yeah. a lot of people don't go down this road in terms of a um, thought out hyper Calvinism or, or a right. rejection of, right. of, of, of these uh, technical definitions. But, you know, functionally, it's happened one way or another. And yeah. so when it comes to communion, let's say uh, they are treating it that way. They are thinking, well, you know, I need to. Yeah. I need to wait until I've got this. Often I have that's to a, that's be worthy. Free, exactly. <laughs> you know? That's a frequent yeah. pastoral issue for us in that, right. you know, you have to kind of, you know, ha have people understand, actually, this is for your weakness and this is to right. help you. And, um, right. and so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of baggage behind that. Um, but yeah, all just to kind of underscore uh, some of the, the practical realities of what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 So, is the covenant of grace conditional or unconditional? I hold to the camp that says it's conditional mm -hmm. and that the condition is faith. But we have to be very careful how we define that word condition. Right. And this is something that um, is very clear in Turretin, for example, in that section I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, he has a, an explicit issue. This is on, in volume two, page 185, where he says, you have to define the word condition correctly. Right. You can define it either antecedently as a meritorious condition, okay. or you can define it consequently as simply the means to the end. Right. And so uh, obviously he's not affirming that faith is a condition in the, in the uh, 
antecedent meritorious sense. sentence yeah, right. is an antecedent condition, but he does want to say it's a consequent condition that receive it's the means by which we receive and come to enjoy the benefits of the promise. Yeah. And I think that that is uh, really crucial because mm. I can understand why the unconditional folks are afraid of that word, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's the reason I think because to them, there's only one kind of condition, and that's an antecedent meritorious one. Yes, yes. And so we don't want to say that that's the case in the covenant of grace, right, obviously. Right, right. Yeah, so say, therefore, let, let's just say there's no conditions. But if we can open our minds to this idea that there's different types of conditions depending on what type of covenant it's in, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about a covenant of works, let's say with Adam in the garden mm -hmm. um, or with Israel retaining the land, right? That clearly is an antecedent condition. Yeah. You must do these things in order to live by yeah. doing them, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And you have to do it perfectly. Mm. If you even make one mistake, you are out. You, you, you're under the curse of that covenant. Mm -hmm. Now, with Israel, it's slightly different because God wanted to maintain some kind of visible, legible idea of the works principle. And so yeah. he couldn't wipe out Israel the moment they sinned with the golden calf. But there still was this general principle that works had to be maintained in order for Israel to retain the inheritance in terms of the, the typological land of Canaan as a type of the eternal inheritance. Yeah. So th that's the key then to defining these two types of conditions. Is right. What type of covenant is the condition operating in? Mm -hmm. In a covenant of grace, conditionality in the covenant of grace is totally different. Yes. In the covenant of grace, conditionality is not only simply the receptive means, it's the consequent condition, the Turretin, to use the language of Turretin, the consequent or a posteriori right. condition. Yes. It's not an antecedent a priori, it's a consequent a posteriori condition right. that simply receives the benefit mm -hmm. that is offered to us. And not only that, this is the great thing about the conditions of the covenant of grace, where mm -hmm. condition singular I think is better because we're talking about faith. Is that that condition itself is met for us because Christ has secured our faith. Right. He has earned it as part of his reward. Yes. He has earned not only the salvation of the elect, but mm. he's earned the gift of the Holy Spirit by which the elect would be effectually called mm -hmm. and be granted saving faith so that they can receive and enjoy the benefits of the covenant. Mm, mm. And once you see that, once you see that in this particular covenant, covenant of grace, the condition is not an, an, a meritorious antecedent condition, but mm -hmm. it's actually part of the blessings for Christ. For, from our point of view, it's it's the condition, but from Christ's point of view, it's part of the blessing right, of the right. covenant. Once you see that, then that helps, to, that really clears up the nature of this type of condition. Right. Faith is a condition of the covenant of grace only in that covenant of grace sense as right. the means by which we receive the benefits. And that very means itself has been won for us by Christ and is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. So are you happy with um, the language that's often used? Um, you know, uh, faith is the, uh, the pipe with which to receive the water, so to speak, or a non, uh, I've heard it described yeah. as a, 
that sort of passive, non-meritorious work, yeah, I passive, suppose. Right. Yeah, right. And yeah. that's what they're trying to illustrate there, I suppose. With, that's what they're trying something. to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's simply the straw by which you soak in the milkshake, you know? <laughs> there we go. It's the empty hand by which you receive the grace. Yes, the empty hand. Yeah, and, so we're, and, we're basically, I think people would be familiar with those sorts of analogies yeah, that's often, yeah. you know, preached and taught. And so that's basically what we're saying here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think another key thing here is that um, you might be asking, so where do you, what is the exegetical basis for this idea that the covenant of grace has a condition and that the condition is faith? And <clears throat> I would argue that it really goes back to all of the passages, especially in Paul, but also in Hebrews, that talk about the promise. Right. Okay. Just think in your mind the promise, right? Romans 4 talks mm -hmm. about the promise. Mm -hmm. Galatians 3, the promise. Uh, Hebrews is talking about the promise all throughout, especially chapter 6. Mm -hmm. um, the promise. And the promise, this concept of the promise, is. Uh, isn't that the covenant of grace? I mean, that uh, thinking thinking here of uh, T. David Gordon's book. Right, totally. Yeah, I was about um, to say. Yeah, he kind of brings it out. Yeah. Uh, his book is titled, I think, it's Law, Promise, Faith. Right. Yes. And promise is synecdoche for the covenant of grace. Yeah. Specifically, the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, which is sort of the primary source in in biblical theology, the covenant of grace is almost like paradigmatically seen in the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. The covenant of grace existed before that, right? Mm -hmm. The first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and so right. on. And it gets fulfilled in the new covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant is set forth, especially by Paul, mm. um, as a paradigm mm. to say, you really want to understand what the covenant of grace is? Mm. Look at Abraham. Mm. And what did God do when he made that covenant with Abraham? He made a promise, right? Right. Right. To you and to your seed, this inheritance, you know, belongs to you. It's gonna. It's a gift of grace to yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed impossible to be fulfilled, right? Abraham looked at himself. He's too old. Looked at his wife. She's too old. A barren. It seemed like there was no way that it was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And yet, in spite of their inability, they believed in God's promise. Yeah. They trusted that God was able to perform what he had promised. And so because they believed, now, of course, the reason that we're because they're not in a meritorious covenant of work sense, but right. in this uh, covenant of grace type but, I mean, of condition, you know, even because just, they believe, they receive. Yeah. So. I mean, you can't get away from it, though. And, you know, you see, you say promise. I'm thinking yeah. also, you know, you know, one of the things, if you want to find exegetical, you know, grounding for this, you just, I mean, whenever the promise is mentioned, there is this requirement yeah. of faith, you know, you exactly. just can't get away yeah. from it. It's why people are our minion at some level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's exactly. just like, we have to respond. We got to do something. So all of the verses that everybody quotes, right? John three sixteen. exactly. God so loved the world that, you know, he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever yeah. believes yeah. there's the condition of faith. Yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, Turton quotes that verse. It's kind of cool to see Turton quoting John 3.16 because it just seems so, you know, like this evangelical kind of poster that you see at ball games or something. But, right, right. you know, <laughs> but it, it's it's the promise of the gospel. Yeah, amen. Whoever amen. believes in me will have eternal life. Yeah. yeah. All throughout the gospel of John. 
Yeah. It was, in, you know, when we, uh, I think having come from an Armenian, charismatic, uh, dispensational, like let's just throw it all in there. I was coming from that. Yeah, other it's all in there. <laughs> and, um, We're all there. <laughs> just in, yeah. And, um, and so, you know, coming into Reformed theology and considering, I think, I think one of the, the, the most awesome things that, that you eventually start getting settled in is the objectivity of, of the promise for you. And, you know, yes. again, this ties closely in with, right. with um, you know, God's monogistic work and, right. you know, and just those, those things that you start getting introduced to and that settles your soul and just kind of gives you assurance um, I think one of the, you know, what we're talking about now has been such a, a real thing for, for me personally, but also then just, you know, discipling guys coming along through, uh, you know, perhaps even training for ministry and that sort of thing, where they've, they've latched onto this idea. And now they're, you know, a cage stage Calvinist and, and off they go. Um, but, but it's almost like then it becomes so objective that to demand any subjectivity of anything, Right. It's just, you know, anathema because now, you know, that would be ruining the, the objective glory of, that we've just discovered here. And, um, and uh, you know, these categories are essential to be able to provide, you know, it's, it's almost like at some basic level, you, you can, you're all sitting in the, in the church. You're all, you know, you got a guy next to you here. You got someone next to you over there. You're all hearing the gospel. It's this objective reality. It's what Christ did in history, you know, amen. But you know, one guy's going to respond, some another guy's not, and that that matters. That's that's got to be part of the story. That's got to be you know, and so to define these things carefully, you know, you can't get away from it. It, it has to be there, and um, you can see the imbalance. If if not in a hyper Calvinism, it, like almost like a hyper objectivity, uh, comes into right. play there. Yeah, yeah, and we talked about Thomas Boston before, but this is where he really shines. Right, and not just Boston, but all of them quote unquote marrow men, the marrow theologians, the Erskine brothers and all those guys, Mm. they really got this. They just completely, they they just wrap their hearts around this idea of the free offer of the gospel. Mm. Mm. That's what the gospel is. It's a promise. Yeah. And it's a free offer and there's no qualifications. Now there's a condition to believe, Mm -hmm. but there's no qualifications. Mm -hmm. You don't have to look at yourself and say, well, do I have enough repentance? Am I, am I sorry enough for my sin? Have I gone through the process of uh, conviction of sin long enough? Mm -hmm. Do I have the signs of being elect? Do I have enough sanctification? There are no qualifications to receive the promise. The promise is a free gift. And to anyone who accepts that gift and receives it by faith alone, you can be assured that you have the promise of God. Yeah. And it's applied to you. And so there is this objectivity. The yes. objectivity that you're you talking about is that. very important. Yeah. It's all about But it's in the promise. Yeah. It's yeah. in the promise. Yeah. Amen. And even faith itself, which is the response to the promise, shouldn't be emphasized too much because then you start looking at your faith. And like, yeah. do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is it, you know, and that's not the point. The point of faith is simply to lay hold of the promise. Right. Yeah. To look outside and yourself. There's something about the promise itself that, um, the way it's worded, I mean, just think about all the, the free offers in, in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that it's worded, it's, it's in such a way that it's like it, it elicits faith from you. Now, if you're not elect, you won't, but it, it elicits faith in the sense that it draws you to believe. It's like it's God himself speaking to you and saying, come, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take freely of this gift. Right. You know, yeah. and, and don't you see that all the fitness he requires is to see your need of him, you know, yeah, putting amen. that thing aside for that. him. Yeah, yeah. And so there's something about the promises that are, it is very objective and the sacraments then we didn't really want to talk too much about the sacraments, right, but right. the sacraments are simply visible representations of the promises of the gospel. Right. Beautiful interplay there. You know, and, that's all they are. Exactly. And we just simply receive them by faith. The sacraments have no power in and of themselves, mm. you know, to use the Catholic phrase ex right. opera operato, yeah. which just means by the sacrament itself being performed, mm-hmm. they have no power in and of themselves to do anything. But insofar as they are visible representations of the promises of the gospel, mm-hmm. and insofar as we respond to those promises by faith, they are seals. They, are, they give us assurance yeah. that these promises are true and that mm. they apply to us and that mm. we are recipients of them. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So, and, you know, even on that point, uh, and I'll stay away from from, from this uh, moving forward, but just basically, um, you know, again, you think about the, this is a big Baptist thing, you know, uh, in terms of just the way right. communion happens, you know, yeah. it's, it's so introspective. It's so, right. uh, it becomes all about your, you know, what you've got, what can you bring to the table essentially right. is, is the story there. And uh, you want to really flip that right on its head and uh, yeah, related Absolutely. to everything you're saying right yeah. now. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too. If you look at the, um, the three forms of unity, the mm-hmm. Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, they're a little bit different in the way that they're written from the Westminster Standards. Right. Uh, the Westminster Standards are very explicit in their covenant theology. Mm-hmm. There's a whole chapter on the covenants, chapter seven, and yeah, yeah. covenant of works, covenant of grace, and all of that. Mm-hmm. You don't find that as much in the Heidelberg or in the Belgic Confession. But if you do a search uh, for the word covenant, mm-hmm. it does show up. Okay, but guess where? It's in the chapters on the on the sacraments. Oh wow, yeah. So the Lord's Supper and baptism are signs and seals of the covenant. Right. Yeah. And so that's where the covenant concept is really clear: is in Mm -hmm. the sacraments. Mm -hmm. We see the covenant there. We see that's where you can see all the elements. You see the freeness of the gospel. Mm -hmm. You see that there is a conditionality in a sense because we have to respond to it in faith, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's focusing on the promise, not on your response. Yeah. And the promise itself is what elicits the response on your part. But on the other hand, if you don't have that response, then the then the promise is not. Uh, it's the promise still stands, of course. The promise right. is not destroyed by our lack of response, mm-hmm. but it but the benefits are not yours exactly. unless yeah. you re- lay hold of them and receive them. Right, right. And so that really helps to clarify then from to distinguish the Protestant view from the Catholic view mm-hmm. of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the sacraments have no value apart from faith. Yeah, they can't do anything to you. Yeah, you know, apart from faith. Yeah, yeah. But if they're received by faith in, in the promises as they're communicated to us through them, then they strengthen our faith and give us assurance mm. that the benefits of the promise are ours, mm. that Christ is ours. Really, that's what it is. It, it's Christ. I mean, if you want to just boil it down, it, Christ himself is what's being offered. And we're simply receiving Christ himself in yeah. all of his offices and all of his grace, justification, sanctification, glorification, everything. Yeah. So, you can see how... You know, again, just what we do weekly communion, and I think we haven't been doing now with the lockdown, uh, obviously. Right. But, but, Unfortunately, you know, one yeah. Of, one of the things I've been missing is exactly what you're talking about right there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's yeah. not that you're waiting for some, you know, supernatural injection, uh, right. you know, via some, you know, sacerdotal means, 
but it's it's that you you know it's such a focal point for understanding exactly what we're talking about now and and it's almost like the inclination of the human heart uh, to forget that very point uh, or to cloud it or to turn it into some legalism thing is just so rampant. And uh, it's at that point when you come and realize, and you, it's almost like you're forced to consider the gospel as it is when when you see, you know, you're simply receiving it and there it is. And, and you know, you're being encouraged at that at that weekly level um, in our case. And it's 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 awesome. And uh, it it's um yeah it's it's one of those things that this lockdown has really brought to the fore for me yeah yeah absolutely i think it's in, in a way it's good because right. it's making us long more and more Amen. for yeah. having uh the means of grace we yeah. can't do it electronically we can't do it uh virtually yeah uh and so our our zoom and and facebook worship services are not really full <laughs> They're missing something. We have maybe the ministry of the word, but we don't have the sacraments there. And so the Lord is using that to maybe uh, stir up in us a greater longing for that. Yeah. Yeah. So when the lockdown is over, you know, we're going to be looking forward to that oh, first man. communion, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I know. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Also, you know, you typically I preach and then, um, you know, one of the elders will will yeah. um, will will administer the table and I get to receive, you know, at that point. And it's yeah. kind of like it's a it's an important part of my personal, you know, you sort of finished your, yeah. your preach and now, now here I am receiving that gospel. So, yeah, I look forward to it. Cool. So, hey, um, uh, we uh, we went we went to the sacraments. We did it. We, 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 we spoke did, about yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want to get uh, into a big rabbit trail on infant baptism and all that, but totally. yeah. So yeah. yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's 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 a great thing. I hate the fact that 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 rabbit trail kind of exists at some level, just because yeah. it does cloud this issue. And I'm so glad we brought it out at this at right. this um, on this point. Um, now, I don't know if you want to uh, get into any more on the third use of the law now. And you know, the other thing that I just remembered is I kind of cut you off. I feel bad about it last week. Uh, I cut you off yeah. halfway through a Klein quote. And I was yeah, like, exactly. what, what was I thinking? Stupid, I have stupid. it ready. You do? Oh, there we go. All right, cool. Redemption. <laughs> Why don't we end with this then? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So, so last week I was going to say, you know, that these this understanding of two types of conditions, depending on which covenant it's in. If it's in the covenant of works, then it's a meritorious condition. If it's in the covenant of grace, then it's a non-meritorious, receptive, instrumental condition. Mm -hmm. uh, what's great about that is that it's not only uh, articulated clearly by a great reformed scholastic like Turretin, but Meredith Klein himself says the exact same thing. Right. And uh, this is on this is in Kingdom Prologue, page three eighteen. Uh, compatibility of promise and obligation. He says, in distinguishing the two varieties of conditionality, the key question is that of the function of the response of obedience. Mm -hmm. If the obedience functions as the meritorious ground of reception or retention of the kingdom blessings, the conditionality is that of the works principle, yep. the opposite of the principle of grace. Obedience functions that way in the eternal covenant of the Father and Son, so the covenant of redemption, mm -hmm. in the covenant of the Creator with Adam, mm -hmm. that's the covenant of works, mm -hmm. and in the Mosaic covenant at the level of the typological kingdom. Mm -hmm. But what about the Abrahamic covenant? How did the promise, how did the response of obedience function there? 
Our concern at this point, be it noted, is with the broad question of the relation of human obedience to the securing of the kingdom blessings at the anti-typical level in Christ, mm-hmm. not the typological level. Yeah. The special question of the relationship of Abraham's obedience to the realization of the typical kingdom is that under the Abrahamic covenant, human obedience was indispensable, but it did not function as the meritorious ground of the blessing. Mm. Page 319. Mm. The obedience indispensable to reception of the ultimate blessings of the Abrahamic covenant is the inevitable accompaniment of the faith through which the righteousness of God is appropriated. For it is included as a fruit of the same divine work of spiritual renewal from which springs faith. They are twin gifts of God's saving grace. So faith and obedience. So actually, we didn't really discuss this. I was Mm. focusing on faith, but what about obedience as well? It's kind of an extension. Yeah, Yeah. it's an extension. Exactly. It's the fruit of faith. So they are the twin gifts of God's saving grace, twin fruits of the Spirit. And because of this inevitable connection of obedience with faith, obedience functions with respect to the acquisition of the promises as a criterion of the validity of confessed faith. Mm. So I would not say that obedience and good works and evangelical faith, evangelical obedience, all those things, I would not say that they are part of the condition of the covenant of grace. I would say that the condition of the covenant of grace is faith alone. Mm, mm. But we do have to bring in those things Mm -hmm. in this way, which is that they are the fruit of genuine faith. And if your faith is genuine, it will produce those things. Repentance, evangelical obedience, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's, that's, um, I love the the whole thing with Abraham is awesome as well because I mean he's like sleeping when when yeah. you know, the, when the covenant yeah. is being ratified. He's totally <laughs> passive, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. it's hard to argue, you know, at that at that level. Right. Um, this yeah. is all all coming from that fruit and um, uh, and that response. So, you know, another thing also, you know, thinking about Klein, it's that altar orientation of the community. Just lay your life down upon, you know, the altar as as a response to what has. You know the altar itself that's made it's made, made a way for you so a lot to think about there as well but um it's a great place to uh to end what do you think it's good amen yeah. uh thanks so much lee appreciate it um again as always i appreciate the time everyone else listening yeah. to this does i will thank you on behalf of them as well there we go i'm doing right, that thank you. Thank uh, you, so appreciate that and uh yeah looking forward to the next time whenever that is sounds good let me play out with my Super slick play out. You should be seeing a black screen now.